This wasn't the first time Peter Mawson was berated by his boss, Joy Adamson. But the yelling and screaming was becoming intolerable. For months, Joy had treated her personal assistant like a second-class citizen. Even after Peter carried her for two miles when Joy broke her knee, Joy's temper flared at the slightest indiscretion. And Peter generally received the brunt of it. But this particular tongue lashing concerned a cabinet in Peter's tent where they kept money for supplies. It had been broken into, and Joy demanded that Peter pay her back for the money that was stolen. Peter protested. He lamented that he couldn't afford a trunk with a lock because Joy paid him so little. But Joy didn't care. This was a personal affront to her. Peter was close to quitting, but he loved working with the leopards at Shaba National Reserve, even if he hated his boss. So he sucked it up and got back to work. While Peter Mawson took the abuse with gritted teeth, others didn't. One former employee, Paul Akai, grew so tired of Joy's tyrannical ways that he did the unthinkable. He murdered her. One death can change the world. At least, that's what assassins believe. Welcome to Assassinations, a ParCast original. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. This is our first episode on Joy Adamson, the controversial wildlife preservationist who famously wrote about her experience raising a lion in captivity and successfully releasing it into the wild. In 1980, she was brutally murdered by a disgruntled employee. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. In 1896, the British government began construction on a railway across the new British colony of Kenya. The tracks, which stretched the 750 miles from the coastal city of Mombasa to Uganda, opened up the land to European farmers, hunters, and tourists eager to explore the new frontier. Clearing land for the settlers meant decimating the natural wildlife of the Kenyan highlands and destroying the habitats of the animals that live there. By 1932, animal life had dwindled so severely that the British government called for the creation of wildlife reserves where hunting was prohibited. Huge swaths of land were designated as national parks under the ownership and protection of the British. Land that had previously belonged to the African locals. Hunting, a means of survival and sport since the era of Homo erectus, was now prohibited on hundreds of thousands of acres of forest. The tribes that had been hunting for sustenance for centuries now had to find another way to feed themselves. And if they bucked the new laws, they'd face the wrath of the game wardens. 
government officials who were tasked with stopping poachers. In the late 1950s, one of these wardens, George Adamson, shot a lion in self-defense. He and his wife, Joy, raised one of the lion's cubs to adulthood and then released it back into the wild. When Joy published a book about the experience in 1960, she rocketed to international fame. The Adamsons were lauded as heroes for their work, conserving the natural beauty of the African wilderness. But to some of the native residents of Kenya, the Adamsons weren't heroes. They were tyrants. Africa has always been something of a hunter's paradise. It's sprawling. Most of the continent is unmolested by large cities. It has some of the most beautiful landscapes on Earth, and it contains some of the biggest and most sought-after game. Kenya, in particular, has always been a favorite destination for hunters. Much of this has to do with the colonization of Africa in the 1800s. Europeans first came to East Africa in the 1840s for missionary work. However, after Welsh explorer Sir Henry Morton Stanley explored the Congo River Basin in the 1870s, interest among European countries surged. In 1884 and 1885, the Berlin Conference took place. Organized by German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck, the conference set out to divide the African continent among the European kingdoms and form colonies within those newly established boundaries. The fact that Africa was already inhabited didn't seem to factor into their negotiations. The United Kingdom set its sights on East Africa, and in 1885, Britain proclaimed itself protectorate over Kenya and Uganda. This lasted until 1920, when the area formally became the Kenya colony. None of this was done with the approval of the people living in Kenya. No tribal leaders or elected officials had a say in the dividing up of land. In fact, as Professor Peter O. Ndege notes, it took the Turkana, the Samburu, and other marginalized communities the whole of the colonial period to realize they were in Kenya. The Turkana are a group of people who live in northwestern Kenya, in an area known as Turkana land. When Europeans began to encroach on Turkana land, resistance was met almost immediately. At the end of the 19th century and beginning of the 20th century, the Turkana violently clashed with the British. Peace came sporadically between the British and the Turkana, but constant taxation by the English, paid in livestock, not money, only exacerbated the violence. It wasn't until 1918 that the British were finally able to overpower the Turkana, mainly by stealing their livestock and starving them into submission. They were the last tribe to be fully conquered by European colonists. British colonialism brought with it all that one might expect. Genocide, indentured servitude, deforestation, destruction of African culture, racial and economic disparity, and a boon in hunting tourism. Well-known adventurers like Theodore Roosevelt and Colonel John Henry Patterson gave hunting in Africa an air of romance. Soon, more Europeans flocked to Africa to go on safari and try and nab themselves a big game prize. 
Kenya, in particular, was a favorite destination for Western tourists. White Europeans were not the first to hunt game in Africa for sport. In fact, many African locals hunted for sport, and for some of the same reasons as whites. In some tribes, it was a prestigious honor, a status symbol. For others, it was because they also had a bloodlust to take down a creature larger than life. The Turkana people, especially those from poorer areas, are said to have helped elephant hunters acquire ivory during the days leading up to colonization. Historically, the Turkana people were known for being cattle herders, but those who couldn't afford cattle relied on their skills as hunters to survive. That being said, there was a clear difference in attitude between African hunters and white hunters, and the white hunters did far more ecological damage. History professor Edward I. Steinhardt claims that there were three distinct periods of hunting during African colonialism. First was the primary exploitation of big game. This was an era leading up to World War I in which hunters and explorers, largely unrestrained, killed scores of animal for both sustenance and sport. The classic image of the British explorer traversing the African jungle would best fit this phase. The second phase, according to Steinhardt, was just before World War I, called the White Settler. This was the most destructive form of hunting. The settlers saw all wildlife, no matter the animal, as a threat to the land they owned and did everything in their power to eliminate it. In the white settler phase, animal habitats were completely wiped out for the purposes of cultivating land for the European colonies. This phase, sadly, was the longest. The final type of hunting came from the Game Department. The Game Department was a British-controlled agency that regulated hunting in Kenya. Until Kenya declared independence in 1963, all the department's game wardens, assistant wardens, and rangers were white. Game wardens were responsible for handling poachers who encroached on land and illegally hunted animals. But they were also responsible for providing protection to settlers out in the bush. Land in Africa's countryside is sprawling and fenceless, so wildlife is able to roam around freely. This sometimes leads to the destruction of settlers' property and crops. Game wardens were allowed to kill any animals that were deemed destructive or dangerous. As Steinhardt puts it, with few exceptions, any animal found on private, i.e. settler, land was fair game that could be killed with impunity. Game wardens were something of a walking contradiction. On the one hand, they were the natural enemy of poachers, on the other, they gave free reign to kill any animal that was encroaching on private property. Throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, these three types of hunters contributed to a wildlife death toll like none ever seen before. One creature found itself in particular danger. The king of the jungle. The lion, throughout all of human history, has been revered and feared for its power and majesty. Hunting lions has been a sacred tradition since 3000 BCE. Monuments depict Assyrian kings facing off with the beasts, making sure history never forgets their accomplishments. In Kenya, 
The Maasai people famously hunted lions as a rite of passage. The men considered the female lioness too sacred to kill, leaving only the male lion as their target. Slaying the mighty animal was seen by the community as an act of bravery. The lion's tail was regarded as a sacred trophy. In some tribes, lion tails were used as the centerpiece for ceremonies. In others, it was given as a prize to the toughest warrior. For white hunters, the reasons for hunting down a lion were different. To the game warden, it was because they considered the lion a danger and a nuisance for the white settlers. For the vacationing European or American, it was because they wanted the trophy hanging in their study. And for poachers, it was because the king of the jungle brought a nice payday. But in the post-World War II years, trophy hunting began to receive public scrutiny. A rise in poaching led to stricter punishments if one were caught illegally killing big game, like elephants or lions. Many of these poachers weren't white foreigners. Some of them hailed from local tribes. In particular, Wata and Kamba poachers proved to be some of the most troublesome for Kenya's game department. The game department established various ways of dealing with these poachers. One was to suppress them through violence. Another option was to quietly sneak into the poachers' camps and persuade them to turn on their friends. Poachers had a network of information, and being able to turn them on each other proved invaluable. One of the game wardens sent to deal with poachers in the 40s and early 50s was a Brit named George Adamson. George was something of a classic romantic figure an adventurer who roamed out into the brush on foot, looking for trouble like a lone gunslinger in a Western. He was so dedicated to protecting wildlife from poachers, he earned the nickname Baba Yasimba, Father of the Lions. In the mid-50s, George's wife, Joy, helped bring African wildlife conservation to international recognition but she didn't do it without making a few enemies. When we return, we'll learn about Joy Adamson and how her journey to Africa ultimately led to her murder. Now back to the story. Joy Adamson was born Friederica Victoria Gessner on January 20th, 1910. She was the second of three daughters born to Victor and Trauta Gessner, a wealthy couple in Austria-Hungary, now the modern-day Czech Republic. When Joy was born, Victor and Trauta weren't very happy that they were given another daughter. As Joy was growing up, Victor treated her as if she was a boy, calling her Fritz and making her wear long pants. Joy desperately fought to win over her parents' love, but it never seemed to come to fruition. Despite the lack of affection between the family, Joy did share a common interest with her parents, music. At the age of seven, Joy was able to sight-read music before she even learned to read the alphabet. She became quite the talented pianist. Even in her early years, Joy found solace in the outdoors and with wildlife. Adopting a tomboy attitude, which was highly encouraged by her father, she was adventurous and enjoyed running wild on her great-grandfather's enormous estate. Her father and the rest of the men in her family found sport in game hunting. 
It was a popular activity among the elite. The most common animal that Victor and his friends hunted was deer. But even though she grew up surrounded by game hunters, Joy never cared for the idea of killing animals. At the age of 15, an incident occurred that forever cemented Joy's attitude. One afternoon in the summer of 1925, Joy was at her great-grandfather's estate, making the rounds with the gamekeeper. They came across a roebuck at the edge of a pond. The gamekeeper gave Joy his rifle and instructed her to take the shot. Joy protested, but the gamekeeper insisted that the roebuck was deformed and useless. And since Joy was becoming an adult, she must make the kill herself. Joy apprehensively took the rifle, aimed, and fired. Joy killed the deer. The gamekeeper was pleased with her accuracy. He dipped a twig in the roebuck's blood and gave it to Joy, a trophy of sorts. That evening, sickened by the act of killing the defenseless deer, Joy vowed to never harm an animal again. She thought what she did was murder. Even years later, every time Joy thought about the incident with the roebuck, it brought her to tears. Joy's parents divorced when she was 10, and she and her older sister spent the rest of their adolescence with their grandmother, Oma, in Vienna. Living with her grandmother changed Joy's character. Oma showed her the affection that was missing from her parents, and Joy became a much stronger, more independent woman. This, however, had one minor setback. She had very few people she could call friends. As a teenager, Joy studied music and focused all her time and energy on becoming an accomplished pianist. She mastered the works of Mozart, Bach, Handel, and Beethoven. But her dreams were shattered when she injured her hands in the lead-up to her final exam. Because of the injury, she would never be able to play at a professional level, so she had to let her musical dreams subside. The question that would plague her for several decades was, if she wasn't good enough for music, what exactly would she be good at? As a young woman, Joy worked various odd jobs. She spent some time as a dressmaker, then in a photographer's studio. She found a new love for painting and sculpting and for traveling. In the spring of 1935, 25-year-old Joy met a man named Victor von Clarville while skiing in the Alps. Victor was eight years older than Joy and a successful car dealer. The two immediately hit it off. By that July, the two were married, but the hasty marriage wouldn't last for long. With the rise of fascism in Europe, the half-Jewish Victor feared for his and Joy's safety. The two sought out a place to emigrate and eventually decided on Africa, where the promise of adventure was always on the horizon. Joy went to Africa in 1937, ahead of Victor, and met a man named Peter Bally. Peter was a Swiss botanist on his way to South Africa, but was making a side trip to Kenya to study a botanical collection. Joy fell head over heels for Peter and quickly realized that she wasn't actually in love with Victor at all. In December of 1937, Joy and Victor divorced after two and a half years of marriage. 
three months later, in March of 1938, she married Peter. Peter would be the one to give his new bride, then called Friederica, the name she would carry for the rest of her life, Joy. For the next several years, Joy and Peter traveled around Kenya. Peter would study the flora, and Joy would spend her days painting. But as time passed, Joy fell out of love with Peter, just as she did with Victor. On Christmas Eve 1942, Joy met the man who would become her third husband, legendary game warden George Adamson. By 1942, the 36-year-old George had built a reputation as quite the adventurer. He had worked as a gold prospector, a safari hunter, and now as a senior wildlife warden. He was said to have been mauled by a lioness. Joy quickly fell for him. George had taken quite a liking to her, too. Joy and Peter eventually divorced, and in January of 1944, 33-year-old Joy married George Adamson, her third and final husband. But it wasn't the fairy tale marriage she thought she was diving into. Almost from the get-go, it became contentious. George would travel around Kenya, arresting poachers and hunting down beasts that were terrorizing locals. Joy, for her part, spent the early years of their marriage painting portraits of the African locals. Joy soon gained a reputation for her paintings, and George, possibly out of jealousy, grew to resent it. This relationship appeared destined for failure from the moment they said, I do. But unlike her first two marriages, Joy stuck it out. Twelve years into their marriage, Joy and George Adamson were still together, and they were about to make history. In 1956, George and a fellow gamesman set out to search for a man-eating lion who had killed a Boran tribesman about 100 miles from George and Joy's home in Isiolo, Kenya. During the hunt, a lioness appeared and attacked George and his partner. George and his partner shot and killed the lioness. When the smoke cleared and the echo of gunshots quieted, George heard cries coming from some nearby boulders. He discovered three young female cubs. The lioness, he realized, was only protecting her babies. Guilt overtook George. He snatched up the three cubs and returned home to Joy. She immediately fell in love. Over the years, Joy had some experience working with smaller animals, but this was her first time with cubs and she couldn't contain herself. She gave them milk and fed them bits of meat from her lap. They named the runt of the litter Elsa. Elsa was Joy's favorite, but that didn't mean Joy loved the other two cubs any less. However, as the cubs began to grow, they also became a nuisance around the camp. Joy was forced to send two of her cubs to the Rotterdam Zoo in the Netherlands, but she was allowed to keep Elsa. Joy and George never had any children, but from 1956 to 1958, the couple raised Elsa the lioness as if she was their own offspring. Joy had finally found a companion who seemed to reciprocate the affection she had so desperately desired growing up. They went on walks together and played with toys. If Elsa was behaving poorly, she was disciplined with a smack on the head with a switch. But through it all, Joy loved Elsa more than she had ever loved a person. 
As Elsa got bigger, the problematic reality of keeping a lioness around the camp began to make itself known. Joy and George decided to take on the ambitious project of teaching Elsa to survive in the wild. Rehabilitating a lion after raising it in captivity was something that had never been done before. But Joy was determined to make it happen. Joy and George were allowed to use Meru Park, about 100 miles from their home in Isiolo, to train Elsa. Each day, Joy would go on walks with the lioness to get her acclimated to the countryside. Meanwhile, George invented techniques like tying an animal carcass to his truck to familiarize Elsa with hunting. The Adamsons would leave Elsa out in the wild to roam around by herself. Eventually, she was able to kill on her own and live independently, away from Joy and George. But that didn't stop Elsa from making return trips to visit her adoptive parents. Joy felt like a mother seeing her child go off to college. She was happy that Elsa was able to fend for herself, but heartbroken over not being with her every day. Joy knew that Elsa's story needed to be told. In 1959, she began writing about her experience raising the lioness. The result was the 1960 international bestseller, Born Free. The success of Joy and George's experiment culminated not long after Born Free was published, when Elsa mated with another lion and gave birth to three cubs of her own. In that moment, she became the ultimate success story. An animal raised in captivity had fully returned to the cycle of life in the wild. But the happiness wouldn't last for very long. In 1961, Joy, who was in Nairobi, Kenya, received word from George that Elsa was gravely ill. The lioness had contracted babesiosis, a malaria-like disease. Joy rushed the 180 miles through the African brush as quickly as she could. But by the time she arrived, it was too late. Elsa had died. Five years after Elsa's death, Born Free was turned into an Academy Award-winning film, starring Virginia McKenna as Joy and Bill Travers as George. The success of the film eventually led McKenna and Travers to create the Born Free Foundation, a charity to raise awareness for wildlife conservation. Joy dedicated the rest of her life to conservation. She donated all of the book royalties from Born Free to wildlife organizations. She went on speaking tours, lecturing, and writing about the importance of preserving animals in their natural habitat. She inspired many activists to work in Africa, including Ian Douglas Hamilton, known for protecting the African elephant from extinction. But the constant speaking tours didn't stop Joy from adopting another big cat, a cheetah named Pippa. Pippa became Joy's newest project, and she found herself falling in love with cheetahs even more than lions. So much so that she and George, always at odds, moved miles away from one another. George preferred working with lions, and they both knew it would be too dangerous for the two species to live together. As Joy got older, she realized her nomadic lifestyle that had dominated her time in Kenya was becoming too much. By 1970, she was 60 years old, and she knew she needed to establish a home. 
She found it on the shores of Lake Naivasha, roughly 60 miles from Nairobi. She dubbed her new home Elsamir. It was while at Elsamir that in 1976, Joy received a two-month-old female leopard. She named her Penny. With the permission of Kenya's wildlife department, Joy habilitated Penny at the Shaba National Reserve, over 200 miles from her home in Elsamir. Though she would continue to travel and speak, Joy dedicated much of the final four years of her life to nurturing Penny. It's hard to imagine why anyone would want to murder a 70-year-old woman who spent the majority of her life dedicated to wildlife conservation. Joy raised millions of dollars through her books and feature film to bring an important subject to the international stage. But despite having great relationships with animals, Joy's relationships with humans were anything but positive. When we come back, we'll dive into how Joy's treatment of her employees led to deadly consequences. Now, back to the story. After rehabilitating Elsa the lioness into the wild in 1960, Joy Adamson decided to devote the rest of her life to raising awareness for wildlife conservation. For the next 20 years, she raised millions and spent countless days rehabilitating lions and cheetahs in Kenya. So why would someone want to murder a person devoted to such a great cause? The answer may simply come down to personality. From the very beginning, Joy Adamson was fighting an uphill battle when it came to dealing with other people. Being born to parents who didn't show her much love made it hard for Joy to reciprocate affection towards others. Commitment and fidelity were two things she struggled with. After her third marriage to George, Joy gained a reputation for seducing men while at dinner parties. After Born Free was released in 1960, Joy even began a long affair with her publisher, Billy Collins. George didn't seem to care. He quickly realized that he was never going to satisfy his wife, and he tended to look the other way. But over time, his quiet demeanor gave way to bouts of violence. One story claims that he grew so angry with Joy's rejection of his sexual advances that he hit her with the butt of his rifle. While Joy clearly never deserved the physical abuse that George inflicted on her, she also inflicted emotional and verbal abuse on him. She needled him constantly over every minor annoyance, down to the fact that he snored when he slept. And the lashings didn't only extend to George. When Joy sent a man by the name of Tony Fitzjohn to act as George's assistant, she quickly changed her opinion after the two men hit it off too well. Tony was many years younger than Joy and George, and she hated the fact that George seemed to consider Tony as the son they never had. She began to badmouth Tony in an attempt to tear the two apart. Tony never backed down to Joy's fits of rage. In fact, he seemed to be amused by it. He often put on a German accent to mock Joy whenever she radioed for George. This, of course, only made her angrier. But Tony never held any ill will towards her. He understood the importance of Joy's work, and that's what was most important to him. 
He stayed in Kenya for 16 years, working alongside George for most of the time. But the locals weren't quite so ready to forgive and forget. As the years passed and Joy's international status rose, her reputation around Kenya seemed to be hot and cold. When she moved to Elsamir, she made friends with some of her neighbors while bringing fear to some of the others. One story relates that Joy's neighbor went to the Kenya Farmers Association and discovered the employees hiding. They told her they were hiding from Memsaib Haraka. In Hindi, this means white European woman. In Swahili, it can mean rich woman. Both epithets pointed the finger to Joy Adamson. The employees at KFA were hiding because whenever Joy was in town, she made a habit of demanding they do chores for her, even though they didn't work for her. She seemed to believe that her reputation gave her special authority over everything and everyone in Kenya. But Joy's rough exterior was mostly focused on her own employees. Joy was a tough boss. She demanded a lot and always berated her workers when something wasn't to her liking. So tough was Joy's reputation that when she first received Penny the Cheetah in 1976, she had a hard time pulling together a team. Many of the local Kenyans refused to help her, fearing her temperamental wrath. No person, except for possibly George, received more verbal abuse than Joy's assistants. Needless to say, they tended to come and go often. In many cases, Joy's assistants took to the actual work of rehabilitating an animal quite well. One of her final assistants, Paul Strickland, had a knack for handling the leopard, Penny. But Paul, after some time working with Penny at Shaba, discovered an interest in birds. When he was offered an opportunity to continue studying them elsewhere, Joy's jealousy took hold and she did everything in her power to stifle Paul's career. In April of 1979, Paul finally left, leaving Joy to search for a new assistant. Joy settled on a 22-year-old Rhodesian named Peter Mawson. Peter was the son of a former game warden in Zambia. His mother is said to have been a Kruger, a prominent family in South Africa. Joy initially took a quick liking to Peter. He and Penny instantly connected. Peter was hungry to learn and enthusiastic about the work ahead of him. The first couple of months together proved quite successful. Penny gave birth to two cubs at the end of May, and Joy was absolutely thrilled. However, the excitement quickly gave way to despair. Joy knew that her Penny project was nearing an end. What was next? It was around this time in 1979 that Joy hired a 17-year-old named Paul Nakware Akai. Not much is known about Paul's life prior to working for Joy, except that he was from the Turkana tribe. Given what we know about the Turkana culture, because Akai worked as a laborer for Joy, we can infer that he came from a poorer family that couldn't afford to raise cattle. Even less is known about the work Akai did for Joy. He definitely wasn't a personal assistant like Peter, nor did he work for Kifosha, Joy's longtime cook. Apart from that, the capacity of his employ is a mystery. 
All that's really known of Akai was that it was around June of 1979 when Joy hired him as part of her staff. In the camp, Akai lived in a single tent and shared a single shower with the other African employees. It's unclear what the relationship between Joy and Akai was like during those first few months. Decades later, he said that he really loved Joy, commenting, She was just like my mother. But he also described her as hot-headed and tyrannical. Akai claims that when Joy got angry, she would draw her pistol on her employees. Sometimes, if they argued back, she would shoot them. But never fatally. According to Akai, she would even pay for their medical treatment afterwards, then pay off local officials to keep the matter quiet. Peter Mawson's evening drinks with Joy's neighbor, Roy Wallace, didn't help with Joy's melancholic moods. Recalling George's own fits of heavy drinking, Joy chastised her assistant for his drinking whenever he returned to camp. This became a bigger point of contention after, on two separate occasions, Joy's refrigerator exploded. The first time, the blast nearly killed Peter and two other employees. A repairman was called in to fix the fridge, and Joy found out that this particular model was known for its shoddy craftsmanship and prone to explosions. She wanted a higher-end model, but this is what came, so she was stuck with it. Just weeks later, the fridge exploded again. The blast caused Joy's tent to catch on fire. But this time, Peter was 10 miles away, drinking with Roy. When Roy noticed the flames and exclaimed that it was Joy's tent, Peter ignored it and continued to drink. Joy was furious. Days after the second explosion, Joy injured her knee while returning to camp in the dark. Peter had to carry her for two miles before he could get her to a car and drive her to the hospital. But his reward for his hard work was more rude jabs from Joy. The way Peter dealt with all the abuse was by sinking his sorrows in the bottle. Consequently, this only made Joy even angrier, and it made Peter an enemy in Roy Wallace as well. Roy was becoming annoyed with Peter and felt he was neglecting Joy in her time of need. By the fall of 1979, Joy began to feel like Peter was turning her staff against her. Things came to a head when a string of robberies hit the camp. The first occurred in Peter's tent. A cupboard was broken into and money of Joy's was taken. Joy demanded that Peter pay her back, which angered Peter since he was paid so little in the first place that he had no money to spare. At the beginning of December, Joy fired Paul Ekai, the young employee she had hired six months earlier. She yelled at Akai for being lazy and claimed that he had become negligent in his work. She also suspected that Akai was responsible for the robbery in Peter's tent, although there was no evidence to back her theory. According to one biographer, Joy gave him a small severance and simply waved him off. To her, Akai was just another African staffer, another name to add to the list of fired employees. A few nights later, a second camp robbery occurred. This time, it was in Joy's own tent. Her trunk was broken into, and money, a camera, and some clothes were taken. 
Joy immediately assumed that it was Akai. The problem was that Akai was nowhere to be found. If he had been behind the second robbery, he'd completely vanished before anyone could notice. After the robberies, Joy didn't trust anyone in camp. And her neighbor, Roy Wallace, was convinced that Peter intended to retaliate against Joy for her mistreatment. He warned her to be careful with Peter. January 3rd, 1980 started off like any other normal day. Joy and Peter searched the reservoir in the early morning for Penny. They found her sitting in a Toyota, and in an act that Peter later found strange, Joy gestured for the leopard to come to her. What made it odd was that for months, Joy had encouraged Penny to dismiss human contact as part of her rehabilitation. Now, for some reason, she wanted to play with the cat. Afterwards, Joy sat near the swamp and spent a while staring into the landscape. She was almost 70 years old, and her energy didn't last like it used to. From there, Joy fell into her regular nightly routine of taking a stroll through the brush outside of camp. What happened next still remains something of a mystery. What is widely believed is that while on her evening walk, Paul Akai, the young man she had fired a month earlier, approached her from the brush. Akai was familiar with Joy's nightly routine and knew she would be alone. Seething with anger over his dismissal, Akai claims he hid there for four hours, waiting patiently for Joy. When he finally saw her pass by at dusk, he confronted her. Akai demanded that Joy pay him what was owed to him, back pay for the salary she never gave him after he was fired. Joy, more than anything, was annoyed. She never showed signs of fear of the 17-year-old, Instead, she argued back and directly accused him of being responsible for the robberies. The accusation threw Akai into a fit of rage. He pulled out a dagger and stabbed Joy three times. Joy fell to the ground, gasping for help. She tried calling out for her longtime cook, Kifosha, but neither Kifosha nor anyone else ever came. Akai threw the dagger into the swamp, ran for Joy's tent, and robbed it, finally taking back the money he was due. 200 meters away, the woman who had brought the plight of the African lion to the world stage was now lying face down in a pool of her own blood, dead, cut down by a disgruntled former employee. A brutal end in a brutal land. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We'll be back Monday with part two to explore the aftermath of Joy's death and how her legacy lives on today. You can find more episodes of Assassinations as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. 
It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler with sound design by Andy Waits. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Assassinations was written by Joe Guerra and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas.